Hello and welcome to The Yellow Podcast. I'm Dee. I'm Ash. We believe that Brent is a vibrant, culturally diverse community filled to the brim with stories and talent. The Yellow Podcast aims to shine a spotlight and give a voice to members of our community. On today's podcast, we have... Rosemary Laye. Welcome, Rosemary. Thank you. Hey, Rosemary. Rosemary is a friend and has helped us with our podcast. So big thank you. I want to say a big thank you out to you now, Rosemary. Very welcome. And congratulations again that we've got the podcast up and running. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with Brent? Okay, so I'm Rosemary Laye. I came to this country when I was seven years old from Ghana, West Africa. And I came here predominantly to, um, to study because even though Ghana, we have a very high standard of, ed- of education, it's not recognised in the Western world, right? So, of course, we've been here far too long now and I'm still here. And I moved to Brent 23, 25 years ago. Oh, time. wow. Yeah, that a is a long time. time. Yeah. Next way we went, oh, wow. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's just, just, just whizzed by a long time. But it's all good. Good. And how do you feel Brent has changed in all those years that you've been here? So when I first moved to Brent, and I must say, because I'm originally from Ealing, so I'm an Ealing girl, and I was always going back to Ealing. So I didn't know much about Brent until I had children. Because, you know, that really grounds you. So um, when I had the children, I started going to... Daniel's Den, <laughs> and then I was going to um, Happy Days Montessori. And of course, I'm hanging out with other parents from Brent. And that's when I started to know what Brent was all about. I started to know other streets apart from the street that we lived on, you know. Um, and I always knew that Brent was diverse because just walking around the street, I knew it was diverse. And, and in fact, that's what attracted me to the place. Ealing then wasn't as diverse as Brent. And I really felt it was important for our children, even though we didn't have any at the time, but I really felt that our children should be raised in the community where they felt or they saw people who looked like them. Because I didn't see that, you see, when I was growing up in Ealing. Yeah, and I, I do hear what you're saying because Brent is a melting pot of so many different cultures and so many different religions um, and backgrounds. It's, it's a real privilege for both me and Ash to be living in yeah. the borough as well. Mm. Mm. I mean, you obviously know Brent and how diverse, how the different cultures are here. Have you had any challenges, any growing up? What was it like for you? I had challenges when I was growing up in Ealing, not challenges in Brent because I came to Brent when I was an adult. So um, in Ealing, like I said, um, I, I hardly saw people who looked like me. So the school I went to, there were about five black folk there. And that was all my, it was, if it wasn't me, it was my family members. It really was like that. And it wasn't until I went to high school and that's when I saw more people. So I was 12 years old by then. And, and I was just so happy. Mm. You know, and just felt so, um, I think, I think the word is belonged. You know what I mean? I felt that um, finally I was amongst people who understood me. Mm. But I had to wait from, you know, between the ages of seven mm. to 11, 12 to feel that way. And and it's always been in the back of my mind that I didn't want my children to feel that way. Mm. So, um, in fact, my children went to Preston Manor School and they deliberately went to Preston Manor School because when I went to have a look at Preston Manor, I saw a lot of black teachers. Mm. 
you don't see black teachers, mm-hmm. especially in secondary education, right? I didn't see any at all in all of my education life, right? Even at university, I didn't see any. And I remember thinking, but, but why should that be? Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of the white um, teachers that were teaching me and my fellow black counterparts didn't really understand us. And like you said, that they didn't really feel comfortable with us. And I didn't want my children to go through it. So luckily, Preston Manor is a good school. Mm. And, um, and I think they were probably even more encouraged to do well mm. from these black teachers because that they too were, I suppose, in the minority when they were growing mm. up. And they were just, I think, just trying to make them feel welcomed, you know, in that space. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And understanding family life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and Brent, and uh, not Brent, well, I mean, I'm wearing Brent, but Preston Manor again, what they did at that school at the time, they don't do it now, which is a shame. They recognise that a lot of black boys, when they go to secondary school, their attainment level falls. Mm. And studies have been done for many, many years about that. Primary school, they flourish. As soon as they go to secondary school, their attainment level just falls. And um, because Preston Manor knew about all the research that had been done, what they did is to quash that. So when these boys of colour came into the, you know, their school, they made sure that they nurtured them and kept their attainment level very, very high, which is brilliant. And other schools and other boroughs started copying an initiative that Preston Manor did for boys of colour. The girls weren't affected, but the mm. boys were affected, you know, big time. And studies showed that maybe it's because when the boys get older and they get all big, mm. if you are a white teacher and you don't, typically mix with other races and other cultures, you might find it difficult to. So there's a, um, a sense of un- unconscious biasness going mm. on. And the boys get affected in their learning because you don't pay much attention to them. And, um, and then if they start asking you questions, you somehow feel that they've been aggressive or they've been disruptive. So instead of taking time to just hear what they're saying, um, the studies showed that the teachers were very quick to send the boys outside so that so they, they weren't getting any, any education at all. And we all know that, unfortunately, a lot of black boys are expelled from school mm. for very silly reasons, very, very silly reasons when they look at it. But it's all because, you know, the teachers who are not used to um, connecting or liaising with other people of colour don't know what to do when it comes to black boys. And it's a shame. And fear fear has a lot mm. to do with it. They won't admit it, but when you speak to them and you get a real understanding that is actually fear, fear of the unknown, because they don't know, you know, the actual cultures that... Um, that they should really know, right? Mm. So I, th- I think, so Brent is really great for any teacher who's lived a very, I think, um, sheltered life culturally. Mm. to get to know other cultures here. And so because it, it allows you to be very respectful of other cultures and other religions, right? Yeah. Mm. Which which I wasn't even allowed to do when I was younger. I was just mm. going to say that. It's so nice to hear that a school in Brent was able to pick up on that yeah. and really on. tackle that, yeah. um, you know, early yeah. on. And, yeah. uh, and other it, schools within other boroughs are copying it, which mm. is brilliant. Yeah. Mm. How, how have you helped your children? I know your children are very close to you, but Mm. how I feel from the way you're talking, I feel you've had to guide them and nurture them. Everything isn't 
what you see and they're going to have to stand up for themselves. I feel there's some advice that you've been giving them to sort of stand up for themselves a you little know, bit. You know, it's really interesting because I've never actually done that, actually. Oh, wow. No, um, you'll find a lot of Caribbean families, um, their children will say that their parents have said to them, you've got to work 10 times as hard or mm. whatever as your white counterparts. I've never said that to my children. My parents never said that to me. Mm. But I think the reason why they never said that to me is as Africans, right, we know where we came from. You know what I mean? Mm. Directly, I can tell you what country and what village I come from. With the Caribbean folk, they don't. You know, they know that they came from Africa, mm. unless obviously they do a DNA and whatever, you know what I mean? But they don't know where they came from. Mm. So you have a difference in history right there. And because I grew up in a mostly black environment, we were all made to feel that we can do. Mm. In the Caribbean now, the ancestors, you know, and, and you know, the forefathers and foremothers were brought to a country that was alien to them. They were given different names that wasn't their name whatsoever. And they were basically enslaved for many, many years, right? So the actual dynamics is different. And they were working and toiling without any pay. Mm. So you can well imagine that once, you know, slavery was abolished, mm. they still had to work hard and they're working hard. And some of them are still not getting paid. And they think, well, okay, you've got to work 10 times as hard as you have. You know what I mean? Mm. Then, then you go to other countries and you still have to work 10 times as as hard as you have to because already in there I think in the psyche you have seen or your forefathers have seen the difference between whites and blacks mm. and how you get along if you're even fairer because the mixed race mm. children were even getting on a lot further mm. in Ghana where I come from you don't see that we, we don't see that you know you're, you're all black you're, you're all fighting the, mm. you know the same fight mm. so my parents never had to tell me that I had to work twice as hard or what have you but I knew don't get me wrong I knew that I came here to study I really knew I came here to study we all came here to study there are five children in my family and we were all told we're going to England to get an English education and we've been here 40 years plus so we've been educated but we're still here well, Rosemary, no figure. <laughs> um, that leads me on to my next question. Mm. And um, that is, you you are such a strong woman, mm. such a strong pillar of this community. And you wear so many different hats. And one of those hats are that you are a radio producer. Um, what does that journey look like for you? What were the challenges that you faced coming from Ghana, studying here, going down this road, and then being quite successful in what you was doing? Can mm. you just talk us through that journey? Yeah, so, um, you know, when I first came over here, I'd never seen a television box before. We didn't have a TV back in, in Ghana, right? And it fascinated me when I was watching television, absolutely fascinated me. And then what fascinated me even more so is that I didn't see black folk on television. So I said to my parents, right, I need to go and represent, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, unusually, as African parents, because normally if you hear about any African parents, I suppose like the Asian parents, they want you to be doctors mm -hmm. or accountants and lawyers and such, such like. Um, but my parents saw the passion in me and they said, okay, then you know, you go for it, you go for it. And I always knew that media, the media sat really, really well with me. But um, I ended up doing IT. I did a, a, an IT um, course and I actually ended up working in IT for many, many years. I didn't like it. 
but it was something that I knew it was the future. It afforded me a lovely lifestyle. And then when I had my first child, I became brave and courageous enough to say, do you know what? I'm going to go for it. I don't know how I'm going to get into the media, but I'm just going to go for it. And it was when I was on maternity leave, um, a sister-in-law of mine saw um, a course in radio. And um, she basically told me about a, a women's radio group who were looking to train women of ethnic minority, ethnic background. And that's how they got their funding, because they recognised, A, there weren't a lot of women in radio, and two, there weren't a lot of ethnic minority women in radio. So they they trained us and I absolutely loved it because I went from wanting to be an, an actress so I can be on the box and television, right? Mm. To doing this radio course and I absolutely loved it. What I loved about it was that you can just rock up in the studio, in your tracksuit, in your trainers and just chat and meet wonderful people. And, and it was a... a so different from the IT world that I was in. When I was an IT consultant, I had to be suited and booted, fully made up. You know, it was just, it was just long. Mm. But here you can meet real people mm. and talk about real life situations and educate myself and the listeners. And I thought, cool, loved it. Loved but I feel, it. I feel there was a bit where you represented yourself mm. and your community. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as, as, a, as a producer of colour... I can see what happens in the mainstream media and I can see what happens in the, in my community as well. So I've always had to flip. So there was a time when, and I won't mention the name of the radio station, I was producing a live radio show. And typically radio shows are about three hours, right? And you normally do about nine topics over the three-hour show. And there was one particular topic that I thought my presenters should definitely do and it was always it was all it was talking about black hair and the importance of black people being able to show their hair whether at school or in the workspace right and um, it was so important for me because um, again just if I briefly touch on it you know when slavery was abolished a lot of black people couldn't find jobs because they were being discriminated over, not only because of their colour, but because of their hair as well. So a lot of black people started straightening their hair. So you know that, mm. right? They put chemicals in it. Mm. So it can look more European, so they become more acceptable, so they can get work. And as you know, more and more people now are realising that, you know, they want to just come as they are, right? Their own true, authentic self. So, And that means having your afro. Mm. Thank you very much. So, um... So I chose to do a subject about more and more communities and workspaces recognising black hair. My white editors didn't understand why I wanted to do that and they felt very uncomfortable about it and they asked me, where did I get this story from to want to actually do this story? And I had to show them that it was just from the same newspapers that they're reading. But you see... It's not really their fault. You see, the, the mindset is they're only looking at stories that affect them. I look at stories that affect mainstream and also affect my community. And it was only one story out of nine stories 
that I did. Mm. And at the time, my presenter, the person who was presenting the show, an Asian lady, she loved it because she can draw upon so many things that also affected her when she was mm. growing up. But um, yeah, so there have been challenges in, in, in that field for sure. You don't see a lot of black radio producers either. You, you don't see a lot of them. Even now when I walk into um, the radio station that I work for, <laughs> sometimes the people who have to get instructions from me, you can tell from their face that they're really surprised that I'm a black girl. You can tell. You can just tell. But what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> well, I mean, at the end day, I think it's so good that you're representing a voice that mm. needs to be heard. And, you know, these walls can only be broken if these voices are heard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Rosemary, what would you say were, would be the biggest lesson that you learned through your journey and your career? What, what would be a big takeaway for you? Do you know, I, I would say for the last seven years, I've been really becoming more spiritual. And um, I, I just want to be me. Do you know what I mean? I mean, today I'm just bursting with love. Honestly, just bursting with love. I did a beautiful meditation today. And you know, you mentioned about my children. What do I what do I tell them and everything? And I don't tell them to work 10 times as hard. I just tell them to do what they want to do. I tell them to really do what you want. I said, I tell them, look, everyone has got their own talent. We've all been given our God-given talent. We know what the talent is. So if you can recognize it early on and work with that, with that talent, oh, that's job done. That's an easier life, right? I did IT. I didn't, I didn't like it at all. Media, I love. But I had to do IT first for 12 years. Then I'm doing the media, right? But I'm just saying to my kids, do what you want to do. And I talk to them about meditating as well. And I tell them about the power within and, and I get really excited when I talk to them about that because my parents didn't talk to me about that, even though I know that my dad actually believes it, but it wasn't something that we grew up on. But I speak to my children about it on a regular basis. So this is what I take from my journey is that you've just got to be your authentic self. You really do. And you've got to do what makes you happy. No one can make you happy. It sounds so simple. It sounds so simple. But I think at that age, you know, you're still finding yourself and you still may not have come across what you love. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do something very similar to Kian, mm -hmm. um, but I'm also mindful. The world is different. The world yes. is different. And he will find his feet when mm -hmm. it's right. I think similar to you, I just tell him to be himself. Yes. He's loved mm -hmm. and uh, he will find his journey. Yeah, yeah. I tell my children I love them every day. Mm. I didn't have that told to me every day mm. from my parents. Not because they didn't love me. It's just a diff different generation, right? Mm. And, and, and in fact, when my mum was living with us before she passed, because she heard me tell the children that on a daily basis, she started telling them that on a daily oh, basis. So nice. Then we started exchanging that on a daily basis. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and so that's why I'm just saying, you know, you just want to just... I'm just, it's just bursting with, with all of that, you know, trying to be your authentic self. So if you're happy, you can actually impart some happiness on other people as well. And just, and I'm not saying that everything's rosy, right? But, um, but you can either choose to, to look at things with, 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 with dark glasses or, you know, or with bright glasses, right? We have a choice every day. Yeah. We have a choice every day. Yeah. So Rosemary, as we're coming to the end of the podcast, we ask all our guests to give their 18-year-old self advice. Mm. What would that advice be? Oh my gosh, just, just live and live thoroughly, honestly. I would, honestly. Live, live your life. 
do you know, I encourage my son to live his life because my, my daughter truly lives. I mean, Zara's always out. <laughs> Zara's always enjoying. Uh, and Roman is, you know, we're all different, right? Mm. Roman is, is not, not so much like that. And I was saying to him, but, you know, go to a club, experience it. And then say you don't like it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Just do it and just say, but 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 not to want to do it. So I feel he's not living his life. But I've got to step back and I say, do you know what? But if he's happy, he's happy. Yeah. But yeah. I, I just want them just to just to live their life and thoroughly enjoy themselves. That, that's what I would that's what I would tell my 18-year-old self, because then I was just basically doing what obviously my, my parents were all about education, which is fine. But um, I don't think I was, I was made to be really free to, to be myself, even though I'm quite an extravagant girl anyway. Do you know what I mean? But I, um, I don't think I was given the license to just enjoy life. I think, you know, I just want them just to be happy and just to enjoy life. When they're happy, that I can be happy, right? Yeah. yeah, I definitely think you are living your life now. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. More so now. More so now, now that they're, you know, 21 and 19 and they're really finding themselves and I can see the people that they really, truly want to be. And I'm just supporting them on their path. You know, whatever happens, happens. But just try whatever you want to do. Go for it. Go for it. And, and we'll see what happens. Well, Rosemary, it's always an honour and a real joy to speak to you. And, you know, we've had conversations in the past and I've always walked away totally inspired. We're, we're so lucky to have you be part of the fabric of our community. So thank you for coming to the Yellow Podcast. Thank you, Rosemary. It's always, like I said, you're always authentic. And like Dee said, you know, we, we all walk away and we're always inspired. And I feel whenever you come to Yellow, it's like a friend come to Yellow. Oh, thank you. Thank it's, you so much. It's been, it's been fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you.